Welcome to The Stumbling Spirit, Contemplations on the Path of Resilience. Whether you realize it or not, you are resilient. It's your birthright. As you take in your next breath, know this truth. It's not only about your capacity to overcome difficult situations, but it's about your courage to do the necessary work to heal, learn, grow, and move forward. What you gain is invaluable wisdom. And it's through these hard stumbles in life that we often discover a new purpose that aligns with our spirit. My name is Fabio De Silva Fernandez, Reiki master, mindfulness coach, and mystical explorer. Join me weekly as the Stumbling Spirit podcast highlights the lives of extraordinary people like you, sharing transformative stories and beneficial practices of resilience to guide you on your wellness journey. Connie Lee knows what it's like to take risks to manifest her dreams. Seven years ago, she left her secure career in corporate marketing to follow her passion for helping others as a psychotherapist. And it was no small feat or expense. She studied in New York, where she got her Master of Social Work and immediately began to practice. In 2019, after relocating to Toronto and starting her new career in Canada, she was diagnosed with cervical cancer. Despite this upsetting news, Connie's drive, courage, and zest for life has not swayed. She's doing everything possible to cure herself of this disease through conventional and holistic means. I'm grateful to have my sweet friend Connie on the show. Welcome, Connie. Thank you for having me. So you recently finished a round of chemo there were six in this cycle, right? right? How are you doing? I mean, I feel, <laughs> I feel like that's like a hard question to answer and it changes every day. But if we're talking about today, today I'm feeling okay. I don't currently feel a lot of physical pain, but the journey's been really emotionally tiring as much as it has been physically tiring. And um, with each cycle or round of chemo that I've done, like it has brought its own onset of different side effects. So it's actually very hard to fully prepare each time around. So yeah, this has been this huge amount of trying to navigate the unknown or just the un unpredictable stuff. And part of that is the anxiety that you're experiencing before each treatment, but also the side effects of each treatment too. Exactly. Could you maybe explain a little bit to us about what you've experienced in that regard? Yeah, like, so for example, so I currently have stage four cervical, that's considered uh, having advanced cancer, it's incurable. And the hope is for me to not have to do it forever. But that's a possibility that I might have to do chemo for a long period of time. And so I currently do it like every three weeks, this can change in the future, it can depend on if I have to switch up my chemo, or um, I'm also doing my cocktail is huge. It's like I'm doing two types of different chemos and, and I'm also on two immunotherapy drugs and they all um, come intravenously. So I, when I do go for chemo, it's like six to seven hours. It's pretty much the whole day that I'm kind of in the, the chair at um, the hospital getting my various different medicine, I guess you can call it right now. For example, 
when I started getting chemo, you just get like super fatigued. And there's days where like on the beginning, I felt like completely bedridden. And then, and then maybe like a week later, you just somehow, you know, my body turns a corner. So I, I do believe in our, the ability of our body to kind of heal itself, you know, cause if we think about just how, you know, I'm given two types of medicine that is supposed to completely suppress my immune system. And then we're giving two types, we're doing giving, you know, immunotherapy, which is supposed to kind of jumpstart it and activate it. So, you know, your body's going through a lot. And despite all of that, it's kind of a reminder to like, wow, my body still finds a way to recover each cycle. But yeah, it's really, it's really grueling. And, um, you know, my immunotherapy brings its onset of other side effects. So, so really you're managing the side effects of the chemo, but then you're managing of the cancer and then you're managing side effects of the chemo. And then there's just like so many side effects of the side effects. And you know, what's interesting is, I mean, unless you are experiencing the cancer yourself, one never really knows what those side effects or the range of the side effects are. Yeah. And it's different for each person too. Like, this is what I've learned. Like cancer is a big, huge umbrella term for just so many different types of illnesses. And I have talked to like so many people in the cancer community and like even people that I know that have this uh, similar cancer as I do, their body responds completely different, even if they're on the same medications. So, you know, I I feel like I have a lot of supports from, I have a huge um, friend community that's been quite supportive who have kind of been my family for me throughout this grueling process. But yeah, I would say that the experience in a way, despite even if you have like a lot of support is a lonely experience. And, and this is something that I find that I hear from, it's not an uncommon experience where it feels quite lonely because it's, it really is sometimes hard to, to use words. <laughs> to describe what the experience really is like. There's an author, I don't know if I pronounced her name right. Um, She wrote this book called Between Two Kingdoms. And I feel like that book is maybe the closest I could get to finding someone who could really pen to paper with words really express what it is like for someone going through cancer and in particular, like a young, a younger woman going through cancer because that experience is quite different. I find someone who's younger, like myself going through late later stage cancer is quite different than let's say someone going through cancer in their eighties or nineties when they might have accomplished uh, a lot more sort of life stages or, 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 you know, life goals before they get that diagnosis. When you say that it's a lonely experience, can Mm -hmm. you describe that? Yeah. Well, I'll try my best because I sometimes feel without words to truly, sometimes I actually don't even think any words in any language can truly describe what it is like to go through what I've gone through or what others might have gone through who going through essentially a terminal illness. If I could use some words to describe it, I would definitely say it is a traumatic experience. It is a very abrupt experience. I just felt like my world was turned upside down pretty much overnight. And to go from feeling like the world was my oyster and feeling like I could accomplish um, anything that I wanted to, or, you know, if there's anything that I had a dream about, I felt that there was possibility 
um, whether it be my career, whether it be my personal life, whether it be like where I choose to live. You know, when I got the diagnosis that my cancer had advanced, it was a huge, a huge surprise because I was originally diagnosed in 2019 and it was very, very early stage. Like they said, my cancer was like the size of a pencil mark essentially. And then we did this procedure called leap where we essentially just, you know, removed a part of my cervix that where they found the cancer. And I was told like the chances of it coming back was very, very, very slim. I think they said 5%, you know, and I asked what are the chances of it coming back? And they're just like, well, anything's possible, but very rare and stuff like that. And, um, so that was in 2019. And like, so I was diagnosed and then I had this surgery and then I was told I don't have cancer. Like this was in a matter of like just a few months. So originally a very short period of time getting the diagnosis. And then I don't think I really even had time to truly process it that I had cancer or, nor did I even feel like I truly identified as someone with cancer because in a way it's just felt like it came and then it went so abruptly. So I would say it didn't really define a big part of my life because I went back to work not that long after and even the recovery time for the surgery was very short and minimal. And I go for all my checkups and every time I go for my checkup, they would say like, you're good, you're in the clear, there's no sign of cancer. Even though I would say that I had some symptoms that I had reported that I thought, well, what is this kind of thing? And I would say I felt a bit, I wouldn't say a bit, I would say I felt dismissed. Um, you know, I reported symptoms of what I now know was that the cancer was still there. Near the end of 2022, my symptoms continued to progress. Um, I started hemorrhaging. I started bleeding a lot. I recall just reporting this to doctors and just sharing this with them. And then, you know, it was again, dismissed. Could it be, maybe it's your period. Maybe it's like your hormones are off. I got, and I just kind of got the runaround for all these other multiple tests only to find out um, at my next physical that yeah my cancer had come back and that it was very evident they didn't even need to do like I mean they did a biopsy but they could see with their own eyes like that it had aggressively grown and so to find out you're pretty much kind of going from remission and zero to like stage three four was shocking to me because I immediately had to put a hold on my career a career that I had spent it's kind of like my baby, like I, like a child, you know, when I moved back from New York after my clinical training as a psychotherapist, as a social worker, I started my private practice and um, it grew really quickly. And, and I, I really felt like it was a career change, not just a career change, but it was like a calling for me. And I just felt really fulfilled in this part of my life. And I felt like I was making a difference, not only for myself, but for other people and being of service. And yeah, so to kind of have that taken away to have, you know, I had a lot of plans for my prior practice and my career and, and my life, my personal life overnight. Yeah, like I had to kind of make a lot of really major decisions about my health and my future. And if I look back and I think about how much I kind of had to do in a very short period of time, whether it be like I had to decide if I wanted to freeze my eggs right away before they started chemo and radiation last spring. And I wasn't given much time to make that decision because they wanted to start the treatment for my cancer as soon as possible, basically. Yeah. And then I had to, you know, alert all my clients that I would have to take a pretty long hold on my career and find them 
supports. And eventually, after treatment initially in Toronto, I had to also make the decision. I found out that it actually it was I didn't have stage three. I had stage four. I had to make the decision if I wanted to stay or if I could stay in Toronto or if I was to move back to my hometown where some of my family members are and where I felt at that time that maybe I could get a little bit more support entering into like a new stage in my treatment that was going to be a lot more aggressive than initially thought. So to go through all of this in such a short period of time, it it is a lot for your brain and your body to reconcile. And I would find to be honest, I think that I'm still trying to catch up to everything that's happened. But I would say, you know, there's moments where it's been heartwarming, because I've had so many people come through and have been so supportive to me during this time. But it's, I would say it's also an equal parts, very heartbreaking. I think the part that feels heartbreaking is, you know, sometimes we grieve things that we once had, and that it is no longer there. And for me, I would say the things that I grieve the most are actually the things that I, I kind of never had, and that I had always wanted, but now I'm not sure where that stands. So, you know, like, for example, I had always imagined myself to become a mother later in life. And, you know, when I had to do the radiation to my pelvic area, that kind of made my ovaries useless, essentially. So that's one example of something that was really difficult to kind of have to make a decision about if you were forced to make a decision between do you want to live or do you want to keep these ovaries? I guess if you look at it that way, it made it a bit easier, but there's nothing easy about making a decision like that when it's not a decision that you make. There's a difference of I don't want to have children and a difference of I cannot have children and that option is taken away from me without me even feeling like I had a say in it. Is part of the grieving though too that you were forced to make decisions overnight about your life? So when I think about when you made the decision to become a psychotherapist, you made a conscious decision to study in New York, a conscious decision to make all of these moves, but overnight you find out that you have cancer and then you have to make all of these changes in your life that are really forced upon you. Do you think that part of the grieving is being forced to make these decisions to do away with things that you loved in your life? Yeah, I think there is an element as humans, we like to feel like we have choices in our lives. You know, we get super stressed if we feel like we're stuck in any way in our lives. So in this case, I would say there's grief and maybe this is also still part of grief, but there's anger. I would definitely say that I had feelings of um, anger because how can anyone really make like a truly sound decision when they're in a, a place of fight or flight? You know, I think there's a part that I forgot to mention too is originally we thought that we could save my ovaries and that there's a possibility I'd still be able to have children. And it was just a roller coaster because it went from this is possible. And then it went from that to, oh, actually we did another scan and it's not, um, it's gone up farther than we thought. And then it's like, actually you can't, so we can't save your ovaries. And so it was just like a big roller coaster of emotions to go from one day, like, oh, actually you, you're, you're this, you're stage three and we can keep your ovaries and we're not going to radiate in that area to actually, no, that's, this is not possible for you. (laughs) 
I do have moments where I feel like there's a lot of things taken away from me. But again, like I said, you know, I never had the thing in the first place. I would say sometimes, yeah, the experience of not even having something and not having that feeling like you didn't have the agency or the choice in the first place is where the grief and the anger can come from. When you think about yourself, just in retrospect of what you've been through in your career and the choices that you made in your career and what you're going through now in your treatment journey for this cancer, how have you changed as a person? I think it's still evolving how I have changed as a person. And I think some of these changes are going to still reveal themselves later. But right now, what I can see is because I have this sense, this greater sense of impermanence in my life or just in life itself, I really have become more choiceful in who I'd like to spend my time with. That has definitely been heightened for me. Uh, I feel like I just have no, I do not have patience anymore for fuckery <laughs> uh, is how I put it. I'd say if I didn't get the cancer, I'd probably be a bit more tolerant, maybe. I would kind of describe myself as a recovering perfectionist, a recovering people pleaser. Sometimes those two things go hand in hand. And I would definitely say it is not as big of a priority anymore for me to please everybody else or, you know, doing things specifically, let's say to not, if I'm worried, I'm going to make someone uncomfortable. Like basically I just don't really care as much anymore. Like these things seem a bit futile. I think the way I try to feel like I'm getting some of my power back or my own agency back is to just be as authentic to myself and to others as much as possible. And sometimes that means making hard decisions, whether it's um, if there's certain people that you feel are not healthy in your life or no longer in a way serve you anymore, bring health in your life. And, you know, sometimes these can be friends. Sometimes they can be family. It could be certain habits that you have in your life, but learning to really think about, you know, who are the people that are kind of raising me up at this time? Cause I really have not a lot of energy to spare and not a lot of time to spare. So I've just been very choiceful and who I'd like to spend my time with knowing that is much more limited than I thought and that I'm very protective of myself now and I really try to make sure I surround myself with people who bring me uh, more joy and that I feel like I can just be myself and that you know it's kind of like a relationship where we both kind of have that same respect for each other so I think if there's anything I've noticed that has really changed me, it's that, yes, I am very selective about who I spend time with. And the second thing I would say is I've learned to really advocate for myself in ways I never thought I was capable of, especially when it comes to your own life. I've realized no one cares about your life more and you will ever care about your own life. And in the end, you might have, you know, certain practitioners or doctors or other friends or family who care about you. But ultimately, in the end, you are responsible for your life and you are the one that's going to care the most. So, you know, I'm not worried as much to like bug a doctor a bit more or to ask for 
to like really push for like that other test or for another specialist take a look at something or to get a second opinion because I just realized like you know my cancer experience there's so many misses and and then sometimes you know even when people mean well and at the end of the day I really had to push for a lot of things and there's just really no time to try to always be how do I say this um polite you know like I, I do everything in a way that I think is still diplomatic but at the same time I've I just learned to become a lot more direct and when it comes to a matter of life and death it doesn't really matter as much to me anymore to like I said to people please how has the healthcare system supported you and perhaps disappointed you in this process the way I look at it is I would describe uh, our Canadian healthcare system is quite broken. I don't really think that's a secret. <laughs> I've navigated two different provinces receiving my healthcare, and I, I can kind of see there's some similarities and there's also a lot of differences. But I think at the end of the day, I try to also have some compassion for the doctors treating me. I would say I have felt very disappointed, but I also want to hold space for that. I think also doctors have to work within a broken system too, and maybe go in with the intention of wanting to do more, but also sometimes the environment or the variables that they have to deal through the politics also kind of prohibits them from providing the care that they really like to as well. But I would say that, you know, when I went to one of the tops, you know, supposedly top um, cancer hospitals in Toronto, I did feel very much like a number. I think as patients, as people, as humans, we kind of know our body best. So, you know, when I'm reporting for two years straight, in my case, you know, my discharge had changed. That's one sign of cervical cancer. Come back. You know, that that was mostly ignored. It was, are you sure you don't have a yeast infection? Or are you, you know, are you sure you don't have something? And, you know, obviously I got tested for those multiple times. And no, I don't. I don't have those. No, no, no. So, and there was never a time where it was like, okay, well, maybe we should get you another scan or something. I think that they felt that their conventional kind of checkups were enough, but, you know, obviously it wasn't really. And um, so that's an example of where I felt uh, failed is just feeling dismissed multiple times and for multiple years about my symptoms and that they're not taken seriously. And that, you know, that the, the doctors can be in my experience, you know, I can't speak for other people can be so like protocol obsessed, you know, there's this kind of, you know, there's a recipe for how they see the patients, but they kind of, you know, I, I feel like they need to have some flexibility or creativity and, you know, ha yeah, having flexibility with some of the protocols, because in this case, my case was kind of rare, but at the same time, if it is different then I should be, you know, the protocol that they have for me should be also treated differently, right. Rather than just dismissed. And no, we normally don't, we don't test for this. If you've already been tested for this in the conventional way and, you know, since you're fine, but you know, I wasn't. So obviously, it's not 100 their current you know methods of, of testing if, if the cancer is there so the two provinces that we're talking about are ontario and alberta how can our healthcare system be more supportive to women's issues i do find that women's issues in the medical world tend to be dismissed you know i think that overall you know it's still a very masculine male dominated industry. And a lot of times women's health problems are not taken that seriously, or they're dismissed or they're viewed. Like I said, like when I said I had hemorrhaging or some major bleeding, and it was going on a long time, 
they just assume, are you sure it's not your period? <laughs> you know what I mean? And this went on for a long time. And it's like, I know it's not my period. I would not be bleeding for like three months straight, basically. And it wasn't until like my cancer was already so observable. They're like, oh crap. Like, yeah, you were, you know, I remember one time when they did find out that my cancer had come back. I remember my doctor, my guy oncologist was like, you really were telling the truth. Like that's the phrase that she used. And I was really surprised because then I asked her, I'm like, why are there a lot of patients that lie about how they're doing? Because I, I doubt that's the case. Um, so that's an example of just how often women get you know, dismissed. And then you add on this other layer that I wonder about in terms of, you know, women of color as well. Like, I mean, there's already statistics out there that kind of tell us that women of color tend to be dismissed a bit more. And, you know, sometimes they might be more quickly advised to like, get something chopped out or (laughs) removed or, you know, um, or they might be believed less. So yeah, I do. I do wonder about those certain experiences that I've had and, and then whether or not, you know, for example, being a woman and also being one of color or being a younger woman um, have also had impacted maybe how I was treated. Like I would say they were polite to me. My doctor's polite to me as in they had that bedside manner of being friendly, but you know, I'd rather someone actually just believe me than just be friendly towards me. You know, there's a big difference there. I often kind of felt a little bit paternalized and, you know, I might sometimes I I might look a little bit younger than my age, or maybe I don't sound as, I don't know what it is, but like, you know, I'm very, I'm an intelligent woman. I know what I'm talking about. I also do my own research and I am someone that deserves just like any other patient. I'm someone that deserves to be taken seriously in terms of like what I've talked about, what I felt very disappointed by in terms of the medical healthcare system here in Canada. But I also want to say that I've had some really great advocates for me. So I think it's really important that I also mention that, for example, you know, they have this program called AYA for young people with cancer. And I think that that was, has been a really helpful and supportive experience to have it basically I've had this one nurse that is on the AYA team at my current hospital here in Alberta and I would describe her as an advocate for me so she's really kind of this middle person that helps me navigate between the hospital that she works for and with myself so a lot of times I find that when I go to her and I ask her I'm just wondering if you could help me to connect with another specialist for a certain concern that I have or you know they sent me an appointment for consult or something but I have no idea what this is can you find out or am I supposed to be doing this um, particular checkup I'm not sure it seems kind of redundant so you know she she's someone that can kind of has access to her the my healthcare team relatively quickly and um, she's also just very honest and kind of lets me know too like how to navigate the system or she helps me to navigate the system as well which I think is so important it's not just showing up for your appointments but it's just like understand how to truly navigate the system which is its own part-time job within itself so I'd say that has been really helpful for me and I hope that these types of services continue to grow and that they continue to be supported because they're so important especially for young people with cancer like myself who I know are underserved. You've also curated your own healthcare experience right so it's not only about conventional healthcare you also have 
a team of holistic practitioners that are helping you too. Could you describe that for us? I do. So when I realized that no one was going to save me <laughs> in a way other than really myself and to find out there was limited options with my type of cancer um, and that was incurable or potentially incurable. I enlisted my own team. I work with an acupuncturist who also does Cairo with me and I have a natural path that I work with a lot. In a few weeks, I'm going to be working with a trainer to kind of help me to gain some strength, some muscle mass back after all my treatments or just, you know, time away from my regular schedule that I would normally have for these types of experiences. Oh, I'm also doing neurofeedback and biofeedback with psychologists right now. I also do therapy on a regular basis as well. I don't know how I would have navigated this without the support of a therapist. Um, so yeah, I have a really huge network of support. I would say a village because even though I'd mentioned like it's up to me, I just realized, you know, after my experience with the conventional um, healthcare system, which as I mentioned, they, they have a place. But I just knew I needed more than that because I needed to protect my own body. I need to get help from people who would help me proactively manage some of the pretty brutal side effects that come with chemo. So yeah, it's been really helpful for me. For example, I should have neuropathy by now because a lot of the chemo that I'm on causes neuropathy, but I, you know, so far haven't had, um, the symptoms of nerve damage for me hasn't been too bad. And I truly believe it's been through the support of my alternative healthcare team, like the acupuncture that I do and um, working with my natural path. So that again, makes me feel like I have some agency in my own health and my own healthcare. And, and I do believe that these people that I work with are, you know, truly do care about me and the people that they support. And I think there's something that is really powerful about working with people that you trust. It's hard to feel like you can heal if you're not if you don't believe or you don't trust in the in the people that are you know that are there to support you and your various healthcare needs so sometimes i look back and i wish that i had enlisted this alternative healthcare team or village when i first was diagnosed but i think also you know it's better that i'm doing it now than never you had a number of therapies including chemo immunotherapy radiation including mm -hmm. internal radiation and of course with that comes side effects some of the side effects that you've mentioned in the past to me have been ear ringing affecting your energy general energy the nausea constipation all of that how has your connection to your body changed i think the way I would describe how I'm connecting to my body now since getting advanced cancer is, yeah, the relationship feels a bit distant. For example, I lost a lot of weight when I had my first round of chemo and radiation. So when I was diagnosed last in January 2022 with advanced cancer, I started doing going into treatment for my cancer around in March, and I had to do mainly radiation and then chemo to kind of improve the effects of the radiation. And so the type of radiation I get is to my abdomen, pelvic area. And so when you get radiation in that area, it causes a lot of GI issues, basically. And I lost a lot of weight. 
at that time. So in a very short period of time, like I'd say, you know, for the first three quarters of my treatment, I was around the same weight and I'd always been the same weight since I was 16. So I've been the same weight basically for almost like two decades. So I, I kind of had a very stable relationship with at least my body image, at least like physically and stuff like that. I lost a lot of weight near the end of my treatment. I think I lost like about 10 or 12 pounds in just a matter of, let's say a month. So a very short period of time and I'm already very small framed, you know, in a very short period of time, I had this kind of very different body that I don't connect with in the same way. And I think also when you, you know, when I became, when I had medically induced menopause, then that happens when you get the radiation to where, you know, I got the radiation for my cervical cancer, you know, it's another change in your relationship with your body, right? Because you think of your body as all the different parts in your body have its own specific function. And, or we think about, you know, our ovaries and the relationship it has with producing different types of hormones and reproduction and stuff like that. So when that part was taken away, that's another different relationship that I, that I had. And I think that again, this is another example of, you know, the relationship that we have with our body is a type of grief that I carry and I'm still adjusting to like this new relationship I have with this new body. And uh, I would, say that I still would like to have more compassion um, the same way I did before because I think that what I'm learning is like before when my body was functioning in the way that let's say it's supposed to you know I regarded that I had a pretty healthy relationship with it but what kind of relationship do I want to have with it now when it's not functioning a hundred percent basically can you still love these parts that are not working in the way that it used to in our and you know I know that they the same way that my friends love me with regardless if you know my ovaries work or not or if I've lost weight how can I have that same relationship with my own body because I think there are these moments of disassociation with your own body and um so I would like to repair my relationship with my body and to still love it regardless of if it can perform, you know, where we come from this kind of culture where we're so obsessed with productivity, right? And it also extends to our own bodies. This is where I feel like when we think about people who are working with disabilities and stuff like that, like how they're largely a population that is, you know, ignored whether it is, you know, not every space might have elevators or have a ramp. Well, this is, you know, the same way you like my own body now, like, I'd like to still find a way to honor or respect it, even though it's not able to perform the same way it used to. Um, but yeah, so that's sort of where I'm at with um, my body and cancer. And I guess like, you know, I've had a different experience with my body forever. Um, I've always kind of, whether it's good or bad, there is this part of me that has, you know, has gathered um, worthiness from um, feeling or looking desirable, whether it's to the opposite sex or maybe being seen with more positive regard or treatment from women as well, you know, whether it be like they wish they were skinny or also, you know, I had a past where I used to model in a time in my life, you know, so I've had this relationship with my body where it's been commodified 
it's also been a way that I've been told I'm worthy because of this. And, you know, obviously, cognitively, I might know that that's true. But there is still, you know, I think that these things that we've learned about where women find worthiness, including myself, even if you're so called woke, um, you know, it still runs really deep. And I guess I'm talking about, you know, obviously, patriarchy, blah, blah, blah. Um, But, and you know, how dangerous and shame inducing that can be. But yeah, so for me, I'm learning to find this new way of seeing value and loving myself or my body or respecting it, even when the world or when, you know, I have these moments where I don't feel like it's as valuable as it used to be. Earlier, you mentioned that you moved from Toronto to Calgary, you sold your condo, you sold your possessions, gave away your possessions, and moved to Calgary to be closer to your family. How important has it been to you to be surrounded by your immediate family and to maintain your friendship connections? That was a really abrupt experience. Me moving, making the decision again, it was a very quick decision don't feel like I had too much time to think about it. But yeah, I had made the very hard decision to move from this place, Toronto, where I called home and it was my chosen home for over a decade. And yeah, like I built a huge friendship group there. I had a home there and I made the decision to move back to Calgary for treatment. I was going to start a new type of treatment and I knew that the treatment would be a lot more aggressive and I did not want to do it alone. I wouldn't say I was alone anyways in Toronto, but I, you know, I was living alone and I just felt like I might need care in a more, you know, I needed, I wanted to live, you know, with my family while I was getting treatment um, just in case anything happened to me. So yeah, you know, very, I think, I feel like it was like a, like a, maybe a month where I had, I, I, you know, I put my list in my place, I staged it, I sold, I was packing and then packing everything in boxes and selling my furniture and it's just crazy I think about like a very short period of time how much you can accomplish if you have to I would never recommend this to anybody but if you have to do something you always find a way and it's kind of what happened to me I would say that that's been everything for me. I don't know how I would have been able to get through what I've, what I've experienced without the support of my chosen family and, you know, all the friends that I have gratefully been able to maintain both in Toronto and Calgary. You know, there's something really powerful about feeling like your experience has been witnessed. And I think that's one way of trying to not feel as alone in this experience is feeling truly witnessed. And when I say witnessed, I mean, that could just be, you know, when every time I had an appointment, a doctor's appointment in Toronto, for example, there is always a friend that was willing to come with me. And when I do a consult with a doctor and having someone with me that they are there to witness, whether it's excitement if we receive good news or whether it's, you know, sadness or disappointment when, you know, receiving news that's not as great or devastating. Um, someone that, you know, you can have a meal with afterwards or just do normal things as well. Because I think there's so much in this experience that just feels so, I don't even know what this word really means anymore, but just feels abnormal. For me, I really needed the support of my friends and my chosen family to feel a sense of normalcy 
you know, in between all these appointments or radiation that had to do like Monday to Friday, initially, you know, someone to have a meal with or do something fun with and help me just to also remember I'm still this person that also happens to have cancer versus like, I'm just this patient with cancer. I think it's easy to forget about your entire identity and that you have all these other parts of yourself for me that make Connie, you know, makes Connie, Connie kind of thing to a doctor. Maybe you're, you're Connie who's patient number one, two, three, four has this certain stage and type of cancer. Right. But my friends, they help me to still remember parts like who I was, or my friends would remind me that, you know, like I'm funny or I'm quirky. These moments where I could still retain some sense of normalcy when everything just really was, you know, like a circus. And I guess in a way they make up a part of your wellness team because you have the conventional process that you're going through with chemotherapy, immunotherapy, radiation. You have the holistic therapies that you're doing as well. So you're being supported in that way, including from a mental health perspective. And then you also have your friends that are there that are literally and also figuratively embracing you throughout this process. Are there any missing pieces to that wellness puzzle for you right now? I'd like to spend more time in nature. I feel like there's something that is really healing and spiritual about being in nature, especially the ocean. A big portion of our body is water. So it's no surprise just why I and why people would feel this kind of connection or this transformation when they're around bodies of water or nature. And there's just something that just feels bigger than us. Something else that feels bigger than me is I still have faith in a higher being. And I know that it can look like different things to people, what spirituality is or what faith is or whatever God they might believe in. But yeah, I believe in something beyond just biology and that like, if we die, we just kind of rot into the earth and get eaten by worms. And that's the end. Or I think that really helps me because I think I'm trying to fill myself with less fear. It's really hard to sometimes, but I think that that's not good for my health either. And I also think it's a very human experience to be fearful because sometimes fear comes in when we're wanting to live and we want to protect ourselves or we want to protect someone else. So I know it has its place, but I also think that because I have faith in a higher being that it helps me to bring in moments a certain level of peace that even if I might be suffering um, on this earth in moments, and I'm not suffering all the time, but they're definitely a suffering in my life experience um, that, you know, that maybe that there's something else like after this. And yeah, so I think faith for me, faith is another part of the puzzle that helps me to navigate my life and to feel a certain sense of hope or peace. Yeah, I'm going to be honest too. There's times where I'm kind of angry <laughs> at my, at a God. And, um, and I just wonder like, well, what's the, what was the point of all these like life experiences? But I also, you know, I think that there's a certain element of also just trying to surrender to maybe let a go a little bit of control of our lives because I think one thing I've learned is that we kind of just don't have any control over our lives you can I am one of those people that's kind of planned everything you know 
if I um, go on vacation, I'm, I'm the person that's booking not one, but two reservations at a restaurant. You know, if that one doesn't work out, I'm, I'm not in the right neighborhood. You know, I have another reservation as a backup. So if you can see, um, this has definitely been a big lesson going through this for me. I think this is not, you know, going through cancer isn't the, the only experience I've had with navigating uncertainty, of course, but this has probably been like the biggest kind of experience of navigating uncertainty. And that's really scary for anyone, but yeah, it's scary for me and it continues to be. But I think, yeah, I think my faith helps me to have a little bit of maybe surrender to this life that we are just completely really not in control of no matter how much planning that we do. And I have to just believe at some point too, you know, like I listed so many people in my healthcare team. And at some point, I think I also just have to know that I, whatever the outcome is for me in my life, like I have to just believe that I did everything that I could mortally could with the information that I knew and the resources that I had. So, you know, a lot of times I think we can try to look back and, oh, I wish I did this if I had known, or if I ate this, or if I ate a bit more organic or drank this water instead, or didn't eat as much sushi or whatever it is that we thought we, if we did this, then maybe our outcome would have changed. But then I sort of think, well, who knows? Like, well, what if I did all those? And I kind of actually already did all those things and it still happened. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like I did all the right things. I got the vaccine before I used to be a marathon runner. I took care of my body physically. I know I was, you know, starting to take care of it spiritually and emotionally through therapy. And so you can do all those things and still life still happens in a way you never expect it to. Right. So I think at some point there's more peace in surrendering and acceptance. When I say acceptance, it doesn't necessarily mean you feel good. It's not like I'll ever feel good that I have stage four cancer, but I think there's something to be said about just like, I don't know, like, for example, you know, I, I can't biologically have children and I'm learning to kind of accept I can't, but you know, how can I be a mother in different ways? Maybe I can still be a mother or maybe I can be, you know, have a motherly role in other people's lives, or maybe I can be a mother to myself right now. You mentioned sitting by the water and that's something that we did last summer at Hanlon's Point and also at Ward's Beach on Toronto Island. And we also went on some nature walks as well. On one of our nature walks, we were in the ravine in the Don Valley Trail and we came upon a cement block and it was spray painted with a saying in French, tout est possible, which means everything is possible. And you sat down and I snapped some photos of you. So what does that mean to you today? Tout est possible. I do remember that day and that was a lovely day. I just remember feeling so at peace and so calm. And yeah, that's an example of just how healing nature can be to your nervous system and to, yeah, like your spirit. Yeah, I remember that day vividly, actually. So I don't know what that means to tell you the truth. Anything is possible. I think I was just talking to another woman who has cancer as well. And, you know, at the uh, my uh, natural paths clinic, and, and a lot of times at this clinic, there's, you know, you run into a lot of other people going through similar experiences. And 
um, everyone kind of has like their own different remedies, alternative remedies, conventional remedies that they're currently doing to treat their cancer and stuff like that. And everyone usually shares notes and you take this supplement or try this or that, or this is my doctor, or this one's not as good. And there's people that, for example, recover from cancer spontaneously. And it just seems like such a fable. And you, you know, there's so many accounts of what we call like radical remissions, so-called radical remissions or spontaneous. Uh, I actually have a friend that introduced me to, you know, one of her friends that has a true story about that. She had late stage cancer. She went through all the chemo treatments. At some point they said, there isn't any other chemo left like to give you like this. We tried everything and it's not working. So your next choice is uh, just to do palliative and to try to, you know, you know, help you to regulate your, your pain as much as we can basically before you die, basically. So the doctors had to determine like, you're gonna die. And um, her story is, um, you know, and I think it's probably for her to like share all the details and stuff, but basically she was told that she wasn't going to live and she had accepted that that was a possibility. And then somehow her cancer went away (laughs) and um, there really wasn't any like full on explanation for it. She didn't do any more treatments and stuff like that or conventional ones at least. Right. So I guess I think of that as an example of like anything is possible or there's just so much, there's a lot I do know about cancer now because you know, everybody becomes like this, like mini scientist and like internet sleuth <laughs> when they become diagnosed with a chronic illness or terminal. And, but I guess I still have to hold on to hope that anything could be possible. Like basically while I'm living, like I'm just trying my best to still live and not plan for my death while I'm still living. Or when I think of anything's possible, that could also just mean I can, it's still possible for me to feel joy, even if let's say I might not have a long time. Let's say I don't have a long time left. You know, it's still possible for me to have a meaningful life. I think it's like, you know, for me to kind of spend more time or to think about what kind of meaning do I want to find with my life if all the things that I found meaning about had been taken away or have been at least temporarily taken away, modified right now. Like what do I do with what I have now kind of thing. And to me, that's what I view in terms of possibility. Yeah. And there's moments where I just feel kind of stuck and there's moments where I feel hopeless. So like there's just this dance. I think it's like just a very human dance. Maybe there's a third thing I can add about like this cancer experience and how has it impacted me, but it's you really in a very short period of time, like just feel all the different feelings of living, of life, and in a way, death, because like, I'm in this space navigating between living and dying, essentially. Um, That's a really unusual place, and interesting place, and a roller coaster of a place, right? So I've never experienced so many intense emotions in such a short period of time, and still feel like, you know, I can still remember parts of myself, even when so much has been lost. And speaking of purpose, you are planning a trip to Portugal. When you think about cultivating purpose in your life today, mm-hmm. what does that mean to you? For now, it's just about feeling joy as much as possible and to be with the people that I love and that I know love me back. Yeah, and that's really it right now. It's like, I just can't wait to be in sun and to see color 
and to just like eat a bunch of beautiful meals and being a beautiful warm I just really because I'm in Calgary right now it's so freaking cold um it's just I am definitely like I just don't belong in winter any winter weather places <laughs> um <laughs> I love summer. I've always kind of been a summer person and a water person. And that just really like my soul belongs in a place like that. So I'm just really looking forward to feeling that warmth. It's just like, I just, it feels like a hug, but feeling that warmth from the sun and just like wearing cute spring summer outfits and laughing with my friends who are going to come with me. Yeah, I think that that has given me something to strive for, to look forward to after all these treatments. And, you know, they're just so much unknown. It's very hard for me to plan like too far ahead into my future. I'm, you know, when I'm going through treatments, really like a day to day, if not an hour by hour kind of life experience. So I'm kind of not really thinking about things like retirement or things that people might be thinking about in my life stage or having that, you know, like child saving money for their RESP or something right now. It's really like, what am I doing in the next month or the next week? Like that's really as far as I feel I can go without, you know, if I look too far, I think that just causes me a lot more stress, but at the same time, I would say I still have dreams and hopes and I still have fantasies about, you know, my life after treatment or what would it look like if I, you know, was living independently again, or could feel that confidence to live independently again, or yeah, there's just parts of my old life that I really miss too, that I never thought, I guess you don't really appreciate certain things until you don't have it, or it's abruptly taken away. And no one can really prepare you for being grateful for some for everything, like just even, uh, I know this is a lot, this might be too much information, but even having a normal bowel movement, like, honestly, I never thought how grateful I would be having like a healthy poop or pee, like, you know, or even just being able to breathe normally, being able to run errands all day and have that energy to even be able to do that. All these things that I think you take for granted when you are healthy and at optimal Um, you know, when you have a chronic illness, these are the types of things where I just like, I, I miss the privilege of, you know, being able to get stressed over very, maybe more smaller things in life, um, whether it's just like what order if I'm going to like a good restaurant or not, or something like that. Or like I said, yeah, I've missed just having the, all these things. I never view them as privileges, but they are. What insights can you share with others about living? This is a cliche, but sometimes that's why we have cliches, but you know, life is in any way you look at it, even if you were to live till you're 90, like life is short. And if it's not short for you, it's going to be short for someone, you know, or some, a friend of a friend that, you know, because we have such limited time, I think at least this is just my experience. I think that we don't have a lot of time to live a life for someone else. And I think that, you know, the bravest thing, the most courageous thing that you can do is to live a life that's just true to yourself, that's authentic. I think that's the bravest thing that you can do and living a life that is not motivated by fear, but by things that you love, things that you like, things that reinforces who you are 
as a person, not who you think other people want you to be or what you should be. I think that's very common for a lot of people is that, you know, we, even there's times where we think we're living a life for ourselves. And later on, we find out that it was not, it was what society told us, it was what our parents told us when we were younger, it's what people who look like, like us do or don't kind of thing. But I think if there's any, I guess, advice, it would just be, yeah, like it's simple, but it's the hardest thing you can do. I think it's to live a life as authentic as possible. That's, and what that means is going to be different for each person, but to live it authentic to yourself. I think that's where we feel the most peace and that we could just, um, at the end of the day, I think we can be so hard on ourselves, you know, like we come from this culture, at least in North America, that's very, nothing is good enough. I need more. It needs to be perfect, but you know, no one's perfect. We are all flawed. And despite that, we all still deserve to have a place in this world. We still deserve to feel joy and to be loved. You know, also, I think another thing would be to surround yourself with people that lift you up, people that want the best for you. I think surrounding yourself with really good people and being authentic and true to yourself and having compassion and love for yourself. I think those are the things that I think are important in, in living a peaceful life. What does resilience mean to you? I've been thinking about this lately, and I think that's a really good question. And I think what I say now you know, might change later on. And I think it's a very, again, a very evolving type of concept, depending where you're at in your life. Because if you ask me what that means, even uh, two years ago, or a little bit over a year ago, like, it would be really different. Uh, but for right now, where I'm at in my life, I think resilience means, for me right now, it means being able to adapt as much as possible because my life is constantly changing. My health is constantly changing. There's a lot of instability. And I have just felt the more I had tried to control different variables, then something else just comes up. And, and so resilience for me is being able to make some level of peace with navigating how uncertain my life is and still doing it in a way where I have some faith or belief or confidence that I'll still be okay. For example, every time, as I mentioned before, with my chemo experience, like every time that I do a cycle of chemo, it's like, oh, okay, well, I had these side effects last time, I'm going to prepare for it next time. And it's not the case, something else comes up. And it's like, you know, at first, it felt so discombobulating. And I just felt so out of control. And I think as each round went on and I was just would get a different symptom in addition to the existing ones, I just felt like a little bit more accepting of like, okay, well, something's going to come up. I don't know what, but all I know is that I'm going to find a way to deal with it. Like I always have been and already have been. So I think that is an example of what I see as being resilient currently and I think being resilient too is still, despite everything that you still always find, that I still find a way to have hope. And um, I think that's not an easy feat at all, is to still have, have some level of hope 
in terms of whether it is, you know, this is why I'm probably trying out all these different alternative treatments, not only as a way to preserve or to be proactive about managing my symptoms, but it's the way that it gives me hope that I'm not just relying on chemo because we know that chemo at my stage just doesn't have that great of health outcomes. And I'm hoping that immunotherapy might be better, but we don't know yet at this time. And yeah, so when I'm trying out all these different things and I'm pretty much using my body as a guinea pig at this time, all these different alternative treatments, and that just gives me hope that I have other options. And when that one, when I feel like, you know, I've come to a crossroads with one type of alternative treatment, then there's always something else out there to try. And so that's kind of where I'm at with maintaining hope and maintaining hope also is still having the courage to believe or to think of your future. Cause like I mentioned, sometimes I can't plan things more than like if weeks, days, maximum months at a time. But the fact that I'm still planning for things in the future that I still believe in a future, I think is resilient. I think it's easy to kind of give up or to live as if you're dying, but I'm still trying to live as if I'm going to be living. Well, I'm still living now. So, you know, I may as well still try to have moments of joy and to do new, like things that reaffirm other parts of my identity um, outside of cancer. And yeah. Are there any practices that you do on a regular basis that help you be resilient? One thing that helps me to keep resilient is spending time with my friends, with the right people. I feel like I always get energized. A lot of things we do is about energy exchange. And, um, you know, when you are with people that are full of love and care for you, it just goes down to the cellular level. And, you know, when I spend time with the people that I care about a lot and care about me, I just feel energized again. And it makes me feel hopeful again for the next day or it gives me this extra like oomph that says, that tells me, you know, it's worth waking up the next day. People have different perspectives or they have different bodies of knowledge or information. So, you know, it's a form of support and that energy exchange, but it's like information exchange and between all of those different variables. Yeah, you just feel like maybe there's other options out there or I can find an, another way to problem solve through what I'm going through. Um, or sometimes it's just that felt really nice to feel seen and heard that day, to be witness. I think there's nothing more connecting as a human than feeling truly seen. I think a lot of times we don't really often feel truly seen and that's what helps me to stay resilient. Without relationships, I don't really know what is the point <laughs> in uh, being on this earth. Thank you, Connie. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, your light. I am with a crowd of people that are by your side, cheering you on, supporting you all the way. And I feel so grateful that you're in my life as my friend. Thank you. Thank you. I feel so grateful that you're in my life too. And I had a really good time being able to share my experience today. And thank you for giving me that opportunity as well. Thank you. If you wish to contact Connie Lee, you can do so via email. Contact at ConnieLeeTherapy.com. Thank you for listening to The Stumbling Spirit. 
Contemplations on the Path of Resilience. This is Fabio da Silva Fernandez. Join me again next week for another episode of Transformative Stories and Beneficial Practices to Guide You on Your Wellness Journey. If you wish, you can follow and DM me on Instagram at the stumbling spirit. Until next time, take a deep breath and another step forward on your path of resilience.